Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. Good morning, church. Today I'm reading from Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. To 17. Revelation 2, 12 to 17. You found I read. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who, have ho who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate, they ate, they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Peter, thank you very much. Mark, I've never seen you move so quickly. Uh, thank you also to those that filled out the survey last week. Uh, we've been encouraged uh, by that feedback, and uh, we're really grateful to be part of this church and looking forward to all that God has. As we said, um, the reason we ask for that feedback is so we can understand uh, what God is doing and lead us wisely as we know how to in this season to come. So if you haven't had opportunity yet to fill that out, you can do that. And you can see that on the website or do go and speak to anyone at the Connect Stand later, and they can show you where to go. Why don't we pray as we open God's word together? And dear Lord Jesus, uh, your word is like a double-edged sword, and it cuts both ways, and your judgments are good. And they are designed to protect life and to release life for your people and in your people. We pray just in this time together, you would cut away all that stands as an obstacle to your goodness and your life in our lives. And in your world, Jesus, we pray that you would cut Satan down. We pray that you would destroy him with the word of your mouth. You would slash him to pieces in this city so that your kingdom might advance forcefully in these days. We welcome your judgments today. Amen. Amen. Those of you who have had the opportunity to visit or even to live in a different country for a period of a couple of weeks maybe, or for longer than that, you know that there's a certain, certain barrier to communication. If you've ever been on a, on a holiday anywhere where they speak a different language, you understand this. If, if you've moved here from some other place, you understand this. If you've lived abroad, you understand this. We, as you know, we often say, um, my wife Amy and I, uh, and our, uh, our first child lived in California which is not the same as saying we lived in America. California is its own special place. 
Even Americans understand. California's not like the rest of the bits of America. And, and in order to sort of navigate that environment, we needed to learn to speak Californian. This is particularly uh, true when it came to having a child. Uh, Grace, you know, we needed to understand that there was no such thing as a pushchair in California. There was a stroller. There's no point talking to Californians about pushchairs. They knew not what we were talking about. We couldn't speak about a dummy. You know that thing you shove in your child's face to keep them quiet? No, no such thing as a dummy there. There was a pacifier or a passy. Uh, it, was, it was fruitless to speak about nappies. Nobody would understand. You couldn't go into the, the supermarket or indeed the store and ask for a nappy. They would not know what you were doing. You had to ask instead for a diaper. What a ridiculous word. Of all the American words, uh, that's the least, I think that's the least attractive one. But actually, when it, gets to, when it got to clothes, it was even a little bit more uh, important. Because when an American talks about pants, I need to warn you folks, if you're about to go to America, you need to understand they don't mean your undergarments. They are instead speaking about your trousers. Uh, I remember on more than one occasion feeling a, a, a deep sense of panic and fear when somebody in California commented on how wonderful my thongs were looking. <laughs> I thought to myself, how do you know? <laughs> no, thongs are actually sandals, it turns out. Anyway, it, it took us some time to navigate our way through this cross-cultural mission and to make ourselves understood. We had to learn to fit in. David Brooks uh, said, and I'll need this on the screen because I haven't learned uh, this quote. David Brooks said, David Brooks <laughs> David Brooks said, never underestimate the power of the environment you work, or you might say live, in to gradually transform who you are. When you choose to work at a certain company or live in a certain country, you are turning yourself into the sort of person who works in that company. The environment you're in shapes who you are becoming. That is a fundamental human truth. We have been looking at the book of Revelation over the last few weeks, and we will be looking at this book for at least a few weeks to come. And what we've been saying is that this book is an unveiling. In this book, there is revelation, there is apocalypse. That word means unveiling. John who receives a vision of Jesus from Jesus is having reality unveiled to him. And at the heart, the center of that reality in ways that we're about to encounter, particularly in chapters four and five, is a vision of Jesus. And the reason this matters, and the reason this matters to the churches to whom these series of seven letters are written, is that the churches to whom the letters and the whole letter of Revelation is written are in, we might say in our terms today, a toxic environment. An environment that is very difficult, almost impossible to survive in as a disciple. And so John 
dictates this letter that uh, is really an extended vision given to him of Jesus by Jesus. And he sends it in a series of letters to the church. And this is what we read to the church in Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Okay, the, the first thing we read here is that this is written to Pergamum. These are the words, it says, of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Remember, if you will, chapter 1, that massive vision of Jesus. And one of the things we learned about Jesus was that there was a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. This was, if you remember, a short sword. It was all about hand-to-hand, up-close and personal combat. Why does Jesus have the sword coming out of his mouth? Well, there's probably two reasons. One of which is that in Pergamum, the symbol for the city was the symbol of a sword. The people in Pergamum, this is like their logo. The people in Pergamum were really uh, pretty pleased about the fact that they were one of the only places in their area who had what was known as the right of the sword. That meant that the Roman government, the uh, central empire command, had given them the ability to, to carry out capital punishment. They could put people to death in Pergamum. They were proud of that. It was a symbol of their power, of their authority, of their belonging to Rome. Jesus here, however, is the one with the sword. It's as if Jesus is saying, look, I know where you live. In fact, he does say exactly those words. I know where you live, which kind of sounds like a sinister phrase that you would hear in a horror movie, doesn't it? I know where you live. But no, there's no uh, Sean Bean or whoever about to come onto the scene. This is Jesus with a, a sword coming out of mouth. He's saying, I know where you live. You live in the place with the right of the sword. But listen, I'm the one who has the sword. I'm the one with the real authority, with the power. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. In fact, uh, again, that's a pretty sinister thing. He says, yet you remain true to my name. And again, a bit later on in verse 13, we hear that this is a place, Pergamum is a place where Satan lives. Satan lives there. I don't know, you know if you've kind of looked around right move recently. I hope, I hope you're not thinking of leaving. But if you were trying to sell a house, if you were trying to sell a city, here's a good thing not to put. Close neighbors, Satan. That's not, that's not going to improve the value of the house. But this is, this is what Jesus sees. In the city of Pergamum, Satan lives. What's going on here? Well, the city of Pergamum was constructed with a, a high hill behind it, so much so that it looked like a throne. And it was the center of worship. Center of worship for the Roman emperor. Here's what we uh, read. There is a, uh, a quote here from Daryl Johnson's commentary, Discipleship on the Edge. As early as 29 BC, the city sought and won permission to build the first temple in honor of Caesar Augustus. Which meant that in Pergamon, the emperor cult... Worship of the emperor held powerful sway over people's minds. How is Satan being worshipped? How does Satan live here? In respect of the fact that in Pergamum, the emperor was worshipped. 
There were all sorts of other temples high on that hill as well. But this was literally, if you like, Satan's throne in the east. You had Rome in the west, west of the empire. That's where Satan was worshipped there. And in the east here, we have a temple to the emperor. Jesus' vision, his view of Pergamon would be very different maybe to the average person who lived in that place. And yet this is what he sees. In other words, he's saying, this is your environment. And this environment, church in Pergamum, this environment is the environment that's shaping you. Understand. See what I see. And here's the thing. In an environment like that, there is going to be tremendous temptation to accommodate. That is to say, to become like your surroundings. Another way to put that would be to compromise, to to fit in, to do that thing that chameleons do. To take up the shape or the color of the surrounding space. The church in Pergamum ought not to do that because the surrounding environment is dominated by Satan. Fear not. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. The first thing that Jesus has to say to the church in Pergamum is you're doing well. You're doing well. We don't know who Antipas is. Clearly somebody who's been martyred for their faith in Pergamum. Even then Jesus says you have remained faithful. Well done. Antipas, just as he was my faithful witness, so you are faithful in your worship of me. In the midst of that temptation, in the midst of that environment, you have and are standing strong. And yet, verse 14, nevertheless. Nevertheless. You're doing well. But there is something you need to take care of. There is something you need to pay attention to. What is it? I have a few things against you. A few things? There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. The word there is porneia, from which we get the word pornography. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them, that is, these groups, with the sword of my mouth. You are doing well, but there is a sense in which the environment around you is shaping you. And it's not just shaping you from without. It has infiltrated The church. There are some within the church, says Jesus, who are holding to the teaching of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know the exact uh, dogma, the doctrine of these two groups. Uh, It's interesting that both Balaam and Nicolaitan in uh, different languages mean the same thing. They come from two words, Lord and people. There's some kind of teaching here that we can't be fully sure of that is leading the people astray. Can't be fully sure of it, but we do have an indication of what it might be. In the Old Testament, Balaam was a corrupt false prophet. He misled famously the Israelites into worship of idols, specifically manifest 
through mass sexual immorality. In fact, it was the other way around. Sexual immorality, that led to the worship of pagan idols, Moabite idols, actually. You can read about that in the book of Numbers. They were misled by their, uh, by their desire for sexual expression and through that into idolatry. Now, in, in the world of uh, the first century world, these particular uh, sin patterns were very, very common. Pagan culture was extremely permissive sexually. You can I'll have a quote on this. Again, I'm keeping you busy, Sonia. You're doing a great job. Uh, Demosthenes said, We have prostitutes for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and for having a faithful guardian of our household affairs. You know, this was a permissive culture sexually and sex was connected to the worship of other gods. What would happen is that you could be invited to a feast held in the honor of an idol. And you would take a piece of meat and that meat would be offered to the idol. Some of it would be thrown on the altar and the remainder would be used for you to have a feast with your friends. What was happening in the culture, we know this from 1 Corinthians where Paul speaks against the church, is that the church were being invited to these kinds of feasts. And they were saying things like, well, there's no real danger in going. After all, there's no such thing as an idol. Idols are made of wood and stone. They're not real. Are they? We know that there's only one God. And Paul says, yes, there is one God. And yes, idols are just pieces of wood and stone. But behind the idol lies a power. And when you worship the idol, you are opening your body and your life to that power. And then they say, the Corinthians, well, it's no danger if when we're at the feast, we engage in sexual immorality and we go and visit a prostitute, is it? It's no danger, we would say in our context, if we use just a little bit of pornography, is it? To which Paul says, whenever you unite your body with a prostitute, you become one with her. You're spiritually joined. There is no such thing as casual sex. This is a spiritual thing that's happening. This is a way in which that which is without is shaping that which is within. This is about worship. There is clearly a group within the church which is saying, being in our culture and becoming of our culture, it's not such a big deal, is it? And Jesus says, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Repent is the word. Metanoia, change your mind. About turn, shift no, your way of thinking, your way of being, completely 360 degrees. Repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them. That is the people holding to this teaching with the sword of my mouth. The sword of your mouth, that double-edged sword in Jesus' mouth, the one that divides bone from marrow, that sword. Jesus says he's coming. This is a picture clearly of judgment. Now, we're not really, uh, we don't like judgment. We don't like to talk about judgment in the contemporary 
church, do we? But we need to understand that God's judgments are good and they are necessary. Why? In the Bible, God's judgment is always connected to his life as creator. Creation and judgment are held together. What God is doing in judgment is to uphold the goodness of his creation. We need, we need God as sovereign judge because we need a world where evil is judged. We all want that, that kind of a world. So when Jesus promises to come and judge, what he's promising to do is to uphold his good purposes in our lives. He comes to judge evil. And he comes to cut away the sin within his church and within each of us for our good. Not to harm us, but to heal us. This is part of his heart as a good, good father. Now you say, well, what does this mean for us today? I'm not about to go to an idol feast. I turned one down last week. <laughs> Orgies? Not for me. <laughs> but have we, do we, feel the temptation to compromise? To dial it down just a little bit? So we fit in. Do we alter our language around our friends? Sneak in a couple of swear words so they know we're down with the kids. Fail to mention the name of Jesus when we have the opportunity. Do we allow our behavior to begin to be modeled on those around us rather than the one who came to die for us? Do we go on shopping beyond what we need? What do we watch? That shapes us, you know. What you consume with your eyes shapes your heart. And what about sex? The thing that the church is strangely silent on, what about it? How have we accommodated our vision of what is acceptable and appropriate in the life of following Jesus so that we become and fit in with those around us? You know, Joel, John Calvin, Joel, John Calvin said, the human heart, and I've learned this one, is a perpetual factory of idols. I love that phrase. Calvin's my guy. The human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. It isn't about going to an idol feast. It's about allowing that to slip in, to fit into us so that we miss out on God's goodness. Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord your God. I will not share my glory with an idol. There is so much freedom in the gospel. You know that, don't you? There is so much freedom. Jesus' grace is so amazing. 
You know, the reason any of us is here, the reason any of us is being uh, able to stand in the presence of a God who is as holy and good as ours is because Jesus' love is extravagant and extraordinary. He has washed us and he has cleansed and he has brought us home into the family. And his love is so good. But we mustn't use that as a permission to sin. We are free not to sin, but free to obey. To be faithful. This is the good news. And for those who are faithful, there is the most extraordinary promise hidden within this text. Listen to this. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. Sounds tasty. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, there are at least 12 possibilities for each of these things. What is it speaking about? Well, manna, as we know in the Old Testament, is the sustenance given to God's people to enable them to live in a wilderness. Did you know that Jesus has manna for you? There is hidden manna. There is daily bread for you. And if you remain faithful within an environment which is uh, faithless, within an environment which is toxic to faith, Jesus promises to provide your needs. There is hidden sustenance for you. What an amazing vision. How tasty is it going to be? And we're going to taste it at the end, but we get to taste it here and now. And alongside that, there's a a white stone. And on the white stone is a new name. This speaks not of provision, but this speaks of transformation. Both of these are offered to those who would come, who would be faithful. How do we do this really quickly? Here's here's, Here's five things you could do in about a minute. Come, belong, pray, serve, give. Yeah, I come here every week. Yes, partly because it's my job. I have to be honest. There is something of that. But honestly, the reason I come here is because I need you. When we, you know, often, I'll be really honest with you, often I don't, I don't, let me say, not say often, I don't always feel like being here. But I'm always glad I came. I watch you worship, and I am filled with the I'm filled with the power to go another week. When I don't come here, when I'm not here for some reason, I miss it. I miss seeing your lovely little faces. Worshiping Jesus. It fills me with spiritual vitality. I am able to worship Jesus and to live a faithful life because of you. That's why I come. I belong here. And I don't just belong here on Sunday. I am part of a few. We gather regularly and we worship and we pray for each other. We break bread. And that keeps me going. I, I pray, you know. You'd be pleased to know. Every morning, I get up. I make a coffee. I take it upstairs to Amy. I thank you. I thank you. I've lost my reward in heaven. And possibly also here on earth. And then I go and I shut my door and I sit in my study and I try and spend an hour 
and I listen to God. I try. I try to listen. I find that bit hard. I open the Bible. I read a psalm, a bit from the Old Testament, a bit from the New Testament, and I journal. I write in my prayers. And sometimes I crawl into that room. And sometimes I crawl out. But I do know this. I couldn't be a follower of Jesus without that time. I wouldn't be here were it not for that. Do you know, I do serve as well. I've just joined the team for Alpha. And do you know the reason I'm there? Partly I'm there because it's good to serve. I'm there because I want to see people experience and encounter Jesus for the first time. That has been the thing that has stirred my I'm not leading Alpha. I'm barely involved. But I'm there because I want to watch people encounter Jesus. It's been the thing that's been most helpful for my faith through the ages. Ages? I think, I think we'll cut that out and say years. Years. Finally, I give. I give. I want to practice not just with my mouth but also with my money. And those practices have enabled me to be faithful for the years that I've been faithful. I'm going to carry on doing those things. There may be other things as well, but those are the things that keep me going. What could this look like in a human life? Final story. This is a story I heard this week about a man called Barry Kissel. Some of you will know that name, but most of you won't. Barry Kissel was, he's recently died, he was just a wonderful man. He was involved, he was a a, a vicar for many years, involved in a number of churches. He, along with uh, David Pitchers and a group of others, started something called New Wine, out of which came Soul Survivor, and many of you will have heard of of those things. Barry was uh, an unbelievable leader and person, but he did so much in the quiet place, in the secret place. He's very prophetic. And I heard a story that was shared at Barry's memorial just a couple of weeks ago. And the story was that one morning, Barry was reading the newspaper at his table at home. And he read a story about a young woman who'd been estranged from her family. And had 